0: Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a re- revelation and, meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, circumcised even though he was Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to be circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? The word of the Lord.
1: As some of you know, I uh, played college football um, I should probably walk that back a little bit. They, uh, they let me walk on at a small liberal arts school in Birmingham, Alabama, which because it wasn't Auburn or Alabama, it wasn't anything. And uh, I had more people at my high school football games than came to our university games because everyone was at Auburn or Alabama. But for 20 hours a week and no scholarship, they let me stand under the center and say, set hike, and then get run over by the first team over and over. So it was, if you've seen Rudy, the movie, it was pretty much like that without the crowd goes wild moment at the end. It was just getting beat up over and over. So I only lasted a year, and I didn't come back out for my sophomore year. And despite how inauspicious my football career was, some people nonetheless found it rather interesting that I played quarterback in college, and who am I to correct them with the facts? I'd rather them pad my resume than tell them that I never took a snap in a game, and my main memory from my high school career was the time when the guy in front of me got injured, And the coach from the press box called the guy behind me on the depth chart into the game instead of me. It was my big moment. This was a big game. And uh, I had to ride the bench for the rest of the game. Now, as I said, high school football in Alabama is pretty big, so there were thousands of people in the stands. The news was there. Can you imagine? All of my friends, my teammates, my family— And in front of all of them, when it was my time to shine, I got to ride the bench. Now, there's a longer story to this because the coach and I had gotten off on the wrong foot. And I had uh, shoulder-length hair, which I'm sure you can imagine. And it hung out of the back of my helmet. And he called me a prima donna and told me that I had to get my haircut if I wanted to play. And I basically said no, and I didn't because I thought that was ridiculous. But it led to this huge embarrassment. And from that point forward, I don't know how conscious of a decision this was, but I decided I would never be embarrassed like that again. Not just in the football or sports arena, but in all the arenas. I was never going to put myself in a situation where I could be embarrassed by not being competent, not showing up, not having the right words, not being able to make the pass. This was, of course, a realistic and attainable plan, right? But either I would be competent in a particular area or I would sit it out. I would not show up because I would not be exposed in that way. Well, That tension is where threes, according to the Enneagram model, tend to hang out. They think that that's where happiness is hidden in the world. I show up in places that I'm competent or I don't show up. And if I can manage life that way, I'll never be exposed. I'll never be embarrassed. And I'm not technically a three, but it's a fairly high score on the actual test. I get threes, and I, in unhealthy places, will move into that zone and into that mindset so easily. I can treat relationships in a very transactional way. How does this relationship add to my branding, so to speak? I don't naturally recognize or connect with my feelings. They kind of surprise me sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> And I think most importantly, and this is sort of the key predicament for threes on the Enneagram, is that I often think that I am what I do or what I produce. And I've noticed now for 20 years of working in an environment that really thrives off of threes, the church, because we love overachievers. We'll sign you up for anything and everything not to undermine Scott's pitch for volunteering. Volunteering is one thing. But we love overachievers. They make the church run, and we generally make underachievers, by which I mean every other normal human being, to feel guilty for not overachieving and not achieving more. Well, threes, and all of us who can uh, kind of relate to threeness, need the Beatitudes more than just about anyone. We need to open the gift that really none of us want to open, and that's the gift of imperfection, the gift of not having the right word in the right moment, the gift of not making the pass, the gift of being second string in whatever enterprise we're involved in. Because in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, which we read, Jesus tells us about the upside-down, inverted nature of the kingdom of God that is good news for exhausted overachievers and guilt-ridden underachievers everywhere. He tells us about the blessed life, and blessedness to Jesus is sort of shorthand for this wholeness that you find in connection with God. This personal integration that happens as you open yourself up to an encounter with the God who is rather than the God we expect to be. And this comes about in a radically different way than most of us assume, even if we've been in, or maybe especially if we've been in, the church for some time. That this wholeness, this encounter with God, is not found in winning at life. It's not found in a stellar performance at our religious duty. It's not by achieving. It's not by competence. It's not by cultivating an independence. In fact, in all of those places, it's monumentally difficult to find God, to encounter God. Whether we inhabit those places or whether we just assume that we should, it's very difficult to encounter God in those places, because that's not where God typically tends to hang out. And these stations, these mindsets, don't tend to cultivate souls that are sensitive to grace. Well, Jesus tells us about blessedness and about wholeness and how it tends to pool in the overlooked places, in the forsaken places, in the sunken places. This is where these places are the places where the humble hang out, where the poor in spirit hang out, where the mourners hang out, where peacemakers hang out, and where the spiritually bankrupt hang out. Not in the halls of power, but in the sunken places, the places that we don't expect to find God because we don't want to be there. And so we imagine meeting God in places of strength, in places of overcoming. But you see, it's these people that inhabit these sunken places that understand that God tends to hide in places in plain sight, that among these, in these places and among these people that are really the cast-offs to our overachieving culture, and the places that are cast off to our overworked hearts. Because their lack of worldly attainment means that they never worry, they never wonder if they're anything more than an empty suit. Because you see, there is no suit, there is no corner office, there is no BMW in the driveway, there is no social media following. What Jesus is talking about, he itemizes these people, not because they're specially loved, but because they have a special sensitivity to where grace pools and where God tends to hang out. In plain sight, in places that we overlook because we don't want to meet God there. But you see, these people don't wonder about themselves if there's anything beyond the glittering image that they put forth because that glittering image has been taken from them, or they just never had it. They weren't all that impressive to begin with. And they don't tend to ask, friends, am I loved for who I am or for what I do? And that's the key question. That's the key predicament for threes and for all of us at different times of our lives. Am I loved for who I am? Or am I loved for what I produce and what I do? And what happens if I stop producing and stop doing? Will my spouse, will my family, will my job, will they still approve of me? Will they still love me? Generally, what happens is that Threes grew up believing that the key to their parents' hearts, the key to the hearts of the other important people in their lives, really to the heart of the world was through producing, through success, through achieving. And so what happens is that over time, they, we, begin to confuse success for love. As Nathaniel Hawthorne points out that in the quote that I printed for you, no man for any considerable period can wear one face to himself and another to the multitude without finally getting bewildered as to which may be the true. And so what happens over time is we settle into this restlessness that comes underneath the pressure of praise. And this happens, threes are created not in pathological families where praise is always withheld. It can happen, but it can also happen accidentally inadvertently by parents who praise their kids. And what the kids hear is that I'm being praised because of what I did because of what I accomplished, because of the report card I brought home. And they begin to interpret that, that success equals love. I'm loved because of what I do. And you begin wondering over time if the people love you or the part that you're playing for them. And for a time, you see, we can toggle back and forth between the false and the real, and we kind of see the boundaries, and we kind of know we're pretending, we know that we're performing, and we can kind of move back and forth. But over time, that barrier becomes very fuzzy, and more and more life can become like method acting. Do you know what this is? It's the actors that basically assume the role deeply, even in production, to where they don't come out of the character in between takes. It's part of method acting, at least. Daniel Day-Lewis is renowned for doing this. He doesn't come out of character in between takes. And so on set, Daniel Day-Lewis completely disappears, and even the crew starts to talk to him like Abraham Lincoln, like they're addressing Daniel Plainview. And that's pretty cool, right? And you can understand that how that would happen in normal life, where just as Daniel Day-Lewis assumes this incredibly complicated and interesting character of Abraham Lincoln or Daniel Plainview, how we assume that the characters that we're playing for the world are much more interesting than we are, that those characters are lovable. People want to get to know them, not me. And so we become method actors in our own lives, and that boundary becomes fuzzy. People begin to talk to us as if we're that person, and the us really gets lost. It's kind of cool when you see it on a behind-the-scenes documentary of how to become a great actor. Here's how he assumed this uh, Academy Award-winning role, but it's really sad when it happens in real life to where the boundaries begin to be very fuzzy. Now, the flip side is that healthy threes, people who inspect their own hearts, people who do the work and try to see the way that they are playing a role in various places, healthy threes can be some of the most interesting, optimistic people that you'll ever meet. These people have big dreams, and they're resilient, and they inspire others to aspire to great things. And they're not always selling you something. They're not, not always selling you this role that they're playing. But they have to think about it. Because naturally, they're predisposed to believe that a projection of them is going to be loved more than who they really are. And so it takes work. It takes time. And sometimes threes actually notice their feelings. You know, oh, there goes a the feeling. That was one. I don't know what it meant. But there was a feeling. I know I had it. And they're curious about those feelings. They're curious about their inner life, even though it might take a little bit longer than some other of the numbers on the Enneagram to really understand it. And maybe most impressively, they've began at least to be curious about other people rather than just seeing them as an audience rather than just seeing them as the person who's watching them perform. Now, it's hard to do this in the United States. It's hard to do this in religion. And that's why all of us can adopt threeness, even if that's not kind of our primary bent, the primary way we show up for life. Because The engine of capitalism, the engine of the United States runs on threeness. It runs on achieving. And the church gets in line, and we do the very same thing. It runs on really anyone who's predisposed to say, give me a job, give me a ladder. Anyone who confuses busyness and doing with spiritual health finds a very comfortable place in most churches. But we saw in our second reading in Galatians that this isn't just a United States problem. This isn't just an American religious institution problem, but it's an old problem. That it's always a temptation to imagine spiritual health as climbing a ladder. That the pathway to God is up and that we go hand over hand and foot over foot and then we meet God and then he is proud of us. And that inevitably, somewhere along that way, we begin to look at the people that are lower on the ladder as less, as less, uh, as less res- recipients of God's love. And we begin to think about the law of God, not as the pathway to joy, the pathway to wholeness as it's meant to be, but we begin to interpret the law as sort of the perimeter of where God's love is found. And those who behave well, those who follow the law, are inside the perimeter, and everyone else, well, sorry, you can encounter God when you come in the circle or come on the ladder, as it were, like the rest of us. And Paul in Galatians gives not only threes, but all of us with any recognition of threeness inside of us. He gives us good news in the form of bad news. Good news in the form of bad news. And it comes in the form of God saying through Paul's interaction with Peter, I don't play this game. I don't do pretense. You see, Paul describes this time where he goes and he visits these other apostles. And these are the bigwigs. You know, Galatians, most people think it was one of the earliest epistles written. And so Paul's... This upstart, he is known for what? He's known for persecuting and killing Christianity, killing Christians. And so he's the new guy. And so, what should be on the menu in this meeting is that him, Paul coming in soft, not hot. Paul coming in sort of with his hat in his hand, maybe with his head bowed and, you know, as a plebe, a freshman pledge, will you please let me be a part of your club? He's the intern. And Paul, as long as you follow these steps and you hang around long enough, maybe we'll let you be a pastor. But see, he's already been doing it. And what happens is instead of coming in soft, Paul comes in hot and he walks up right to Peter, the man, the CEO, and he calls him out for rank hypocrisy. Now, Peter, you see, he's been ministering to the Jews. And he doesn't mind hanging out with the Gentiles. He's begun to eat with them ever since this encounter with Cornelius back in Acts 10, where God tells him, Peter, you don't get to decide who's in and out. You don't get to decide who's clean and unclean. I say who's clean and unclean. And I say, Cornelius, this Gentile is clean. And so Peter learns this amazing lesson, and he is at this meeting, and around town, he's hanging out with the Gentiles. But then this other group comes in, and this certain group is sort of like the border patrol. They're the ones that patrol the perimeter. They say who's in and out. And they still think that, well, the Gentiles can get in, and Jesus is part of this whole equation, but they have to do X, Y, Z, or they're not really in. They're not really us. We sort of let them hang out around the edges. They're the group that inspects everyone's papers, and their opinion matters to Peter. It matters deeply. And so he begins to forget when they come in the door, everything he knows about Jesus, everything he knows about grace, everything he knows about the gospel when this other group is looking. You see, they're important to Peter. And what they expect of him overrides Peter's sense of self. He, be, he values their opinion more than he values being true to himself, to the person that God has made him to be, and to the truth that God has revealed to him. Go and eat with Cornelius, because I consider him clean. And so Paul, this young punk, really recent convert, walks up to Peter, who's the man, and he says, hey, knock it off. Knock it off, because you're not living straight according to the gospel. You're a hypocrite. You're not living in line with the gospel. This Greek word is orthopedia, from which we get orthopedics. It's walking straight, our body being aligned correctly. You're not walking straight with Jesus, Peter. It's important to threes and to really all of us is that Paul says that this group that Peter is kowtowing to, you see, they're the above and beyond crowd. They're the climb the ladder crowd. Sure, you can get on the ladder only by grace, only by Jesus, but you have to climb it by doing these things. One would be obviously in that situation being circumcised. Sure, everyone needs Jesus, but we also have these rules, and they're tried and true. Who are you to overturn them? You can't just live by the gospel alone. Well, that would be chaos. you got to follow the rules, and they're written down over here. Go memorize them. And Paul A Jew himself isn't having it because he believes God isn't having it. And he characterizes this group, this border patrol coming in, he characterizes them as trying to spy out our freedom. They want to take us back into slavery. But thankfully, Paul wasn't enslaved to social convention or to the hierarchical expectations of the church. He walked in and spoke the truth to the biggest guy in the room. Whereas you see, Peter was still method acting. He was moving in and out of character based upon who was in the room. He wasn't free from what he thought people wanted from him. He saw everyone bringing him a ladder and said, I'll be happy to climb that ladder because at least I know where I stand with you. He was nothing, you see, with this one group without his ladder and without his resume. And friends, the good news, bad news, tension of the gospel is that God says to us, I don't need your resume. I don't love your performance. It's fine, but it's not what I'm looking for. And see, this is good news and bad news because the bad news is that we've worked hard on a resume. We love climbing the ladder. We know what people want from us. And so why would we ditch all of that learning and all of the ways that we've learned to manipulate the crowd? And the bad news is that to encounter God is that you have to. You have to give it up. But the good news is when you step across that line, you get to see God loving you for who you are and not what you do. And that's what not just threes are looking for, but that's what all of us are looking for. And what God says in the good news, bad news of the gospel is that I see you. No one else sees you like I see you. I see your core. And that's scary. That's painful. But it opens us up to be able to look at our own core and look at our, our own the way that we manipulate people to look at our own game and to say, I don't have to play that anymore. I choose from now on because God loves me for who I am. I choose to move into the world, and I want people to love me for me, not because of the performance, not because of the role, not because of the persona. And as I catch myself longing for that, I walk it back. And it's not something you get overnight. This takes work for all of us. It is a spiritual act that we have to continue, but is based upon the fundamental truth of how God sees us, that he reaches out and embraces us in love as we are, not as we will become, not as we hope we will become. He comes to earth to rescue us from our act, from all of our posturing and all of our pretending and all of our chameleon way, I just invented that word, all the ways we chameleon through life, he comes to rescue us. And at the cross, you see, we're exposed. We're laid bare, just like Jesus is. And it's there that all of the societal, parental, religious expectations that we've been trying to live up to so hard for so long, that they die. They die that they fall away. And maybe you do live in a little chaos for a while. Maybe you don't follow the rules that maybe you should. But that's okay, because God is at work on you, and you'll figure it out. Because in conversion, the Holy Spirit inhabits you, and what changes you is not looking at the list of rules on the wall and saying, now i got to do that. Now i got to do that. It is opening yourself up to transformation by the Holy Spirit in community. And we see on the cross Jesus saying, This is how much I love you apart from the law, apart from all of that. And then you can begin to walk. And your life purpose isn't then managing people's expectations, which is frankly exhausting or avoiding embarrassment. That's my cross to bear. That's my life lie. If I can avoid embarrassment, I'll be okay. But we can step into that role of the person that God actually made us to be, which, oh, by the way, happens to be our true self, who we are at our most honest, who we are when we take off the mask. That's the person that God loves, and that's the person that he wants to be loved by other people, and it takes actually... You looking at yourself and saying, I'm okay because God loves me. And sure, I want to get better. I want to achieve. I want to do these great things for the world. I want to be like Jesus. But Jesus loves me in the meantime when I'm not. Let's pray. God, I pray as we come to this table that we would see just how far your grace extends. That it comes to us. Not in strength, not in overcoming, not in overachieving, but in a backwoods village and then to a cross. And that we would see your love for us is so expansive that you would die for us. And that, God, I pray that for all of us that we would walk in the manner of the of that truth and walk in light of what that means to us personally. I pray that we would come and celebrate this meal with great joy and that it would feed us in all of the places that we are thirsty and hungry. Amen.